Well, everybody, welcome to Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. I am your host, Justin. Tonight, we'll be covering the case of Alyssa Turney. It'll be the disappearance of Alyssa Turney. I have a very special co-host with me. And uh, Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Um, my name is Sarah Turney, and I'm Alyssa Turney's sister. Like we were talking before recording, going over this case... It's definitely an interesting one, and I can see why uh, I think there was another podcast you just did an episode on it like last week or something. I can see why people are really, really pulled to it. There's a lot of uh, pretty interesting things going on here. So, yeah, it's um, definitely a crazy ride. It's very complicated <laughs> and complex, and you could really go as deep as you want with this case. It's, it's insane. It really is. To get us started, I would love for you to introduce the listeners to... Alyssa, I would love to know what kind of person she was personally and a little bit about your home life growing up. Yeah, um, Alyssa is my big sister. She's four years older than me, um, and we grew up together. We had um, we have four older brothers, but it was essentially us in the house. Um, and Alyssa was amazing. I mean, we fought at the time because we were very young. She was 17, and I was 12 when she went missing, and um we fought all the time, but she was great. I mean, she was funny and charismatic and had a ton of friends and um, she was alternative. And I thought she was really cool. You know, she wore the big raver pants and like um, different character t-shirts like Hello Kitty and Care Bears um, and Rainbow Bright. And she was just super cute. She loved writing letters and using stickers and um, her Blue's Clues blanket. Um, so she was really fun. Um, and then she was really cool to me. You know, I was four years younger and thought she was pretty much the coolest person on the planet. Um, she was listening to Tool and Limp Bizkit, Marilyn Manson, Eminem. Um, so she really paved this path for me that I ended up taking in my life. Um, and she was everything to me. I looked up to her very, very much. Sounds like something I would, somebody I would probably hang out with, to be honest <laughs> right? with you. It sounds pretty awesome. Tell us about, because this is going to be a big factor in, uh, in, in the case, tell us a little bit about Michael. Sure. Um, Michael Turney is our father, my biological father and Alyssa's stepfather. And he is a very complicated man, very egotistical, um, very manipulative. Okay, so Alyssa was a junior at Paradise Valley High School in Phoenix, Arizona, and if I'm, my notes are correct, um, she had a steady boyfriend named John. She worked at Jack in the Box and was very, she was a good worker. She never really missed a shift, did she? Yeah, that's all correct. She was a very good worker. Um, you know, her manager said that she was friendly and could balance her drawer and did a great job. So basically, she's a pretty responsible teenager from what it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she never missed school. Um, like I said, she held the job. She babysat on the side and watched me and cooked dinners and cleaned the house. She was very responsible. Now, we're going to jump forward to May 17th, 2001. Uh, it was the last day of school that year. What I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of go through Michael's timeline of events because, unfortunately, he has a big narrative in this case. So, I'm going to go through step-by-step, uh, step, and I would love for you to either interject or fact-check me or uh, add information if you would like to. So she was supposed to have an early dismissal that day. Now, according to Michael, he picks her up at around 10.30 or 11 a.m. Uh, he takes Alyssa to a restaurant. They pick up a little bit of food, return to the house uh, where they're going to have a discussion on summer plans 
uh, turns into an argument and Michael leaves the house. Sorry, he actually the, says that they, they had the argument at lunch. Okay. And when um, they went out together, they had a huge argument. Okay. Now, was there any summer plans in the making for you guys or for her? Not that, that I was aware that, of, no. Okay. Okay. So he says he goes sh shopping for a camera lens, runs other errands, then picks up Sarah, you, from uh, school along the way, calls Alyssa's cell phone, uh, but she doesn't answer. He actually, um, he missed picking me up at school. Um, he wasn't there when I got off the bus from my field trip, so I walked to a friend's house, and he picked me up from there after I gave him a call. Okay. Now, this is, according to you, and you were you were at a water park with friends? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it was a field trip for school, so to celebrate the last day of my seventh grade year, um, we went to a water park. Okay. So what happens when when you guys go home? So I don't remember who entered the house first, but I entered her room first, and her backpack was dumped all over the ground, um, and the backpack was gone. And I looked to my left, and onto her dresser was the note um, and her cell phone. Okay, and, and the note says, Dad and Sarah, when you dropped me off at school today, I decided I really am going to go to California. Sarah, you said you didn't want me around. You got it. I'm gone. That's why I saved my money. Dad, I took $300 from you, Alyssa. Now, what can you can you give us a little bit of insight on that note? Was she planning on going to California at any other time or at, at any time in particular? Or did it look like her handwriting? Can you maybe give a little info on the note? Absolutely. It was her handwriting. It was tested by um, a handwriting expert, and it is hers. And I did learn recently that she uh, did plan to go to California. She actually had a conversation with our Aunt Lynette who invited her to come out for the summer. That conversation happened just a few days before she went missing. Like we had stated earlier, she's an extremely responsible person. And obviously she's in touch with your aunt in California. Obviously your aunt straight up said, you know, hey, she never made it here. So seven days after she disappeared on May 24th, Michael claims that he receives a call from Melissa at 5 a.m. I uh, said she seemed upset. Her voice sounded muffled. She cursed at him and told him to leave her alone. Now, the thing that really bothers me about that is, is first off, like Michael said, you know, he's distraught. Okay. He made flyers and contacting the, the missing and exploited center for children to report her missing. Uh, got phone records for that day. Couldn't stop talking about her. I guess my big question in that statement is, I don't understand, I guess, why she would specifically say for him to leave her alone, as if he was in contact with her before that or something like that. That really, that statement really makes not much sense to me. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I haven't really thought about that. That's why I love doing these interviews is I, I really find out new things and different aspects of that people are saying that I'm not. Why call and say, leave me alone? I, that doesn't really make any sense. The opportunity to go out there and have someone else make this phone call was there. He visited California many times. But this phone call is a real thing that happened. I mean, my father sued the phone company to get the record. Um, and he was extremely concerned after she left. I mean, all that's true. He did make all these flyers and was talking about her constantly. Um, but now we know, you know, he told different stories to different people and his concern maybe wasn't all there. I think, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to outright say it. You know, the concern, I guess, do you think it was more than biological, possibly? 
more than father daughter i guess yeah absolutely i think that they had a much more intimate relationship than i was aware of i mean she's told friends many disturbing stories about him sexually abusing her um i've seen letters that she's written i can confirm it's her handwriting and yeah they absolutely had an inappropriate relationship even the way he speaks about her now he speaks about her in a in a way that a boyfriend would speak about an ex-girlfriend like in a way that is just so malicious and and not the way a concerned parent speaks about their missing child you see all these parents go on tv and they're they're crying and they're you know telling everyone how wonderful their child was you know she was beautiful and athletic and smart and funny and you should have met her and he doesn't do that he talks about her and says that she was sexually promiscuous and says that she's dumb that's just not what you do when you are concerned about your child and it's gross yeah it's seriously fucked up to be perfectly honest with you because that's pretty much where i was at with it i started getting into it and i'm like wait a fucking minute like something right here i've obviously watched a lot of interviews with parents of missing children and and stuff like that and you can definitely tell the different types of parents i guess you could say it's it's really really weird absolutely i mean and just the remarks he makes are so uncalled for i mean if you listen to his last interview someone brings up Alyssa's steady boyfriend and my dad makes a comment to the effect of, you know, his truck was so shitty he could never get that thing started anyway. And it's such like a, a guy putting down another guy type mm-hmm. of thing. I don't know. It just is so weird. It just stuck out to me so much as so inappropriate. That is pretty odd, actually. Well, as a parent, don't you look at a 17-year-old with a crappy car and say, well, you know, that's pretty normal. Oh, yeah. It's it's being <laughs> a kid and having a shitty car. Like, that's... That's right. life. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of, it, it kind of makes me think like, oh, he's not good enough for her. Or, you know, something mm-hmm. of that nature. With when Don't don't get me wrong. Like, you know, obviously I don't have any daughters. And I don't want to say thank God for that. I have two boys. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, my boys' mom, she sees the little, you know, eight, nine, and ten-year-old girls. And she's like, I don't like that girl. You know, it's like, you know, so I mean, I can kind of see that. But at the same time, it seems like he projects kind of like, well, I'm I'm good enough for but that person's not. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Let's jump forward a little bit. Um, Six years after the disappearance, a guy named Thomas Heimer, who is a convicted murderer in Florida, confesses to FBI agents to killing 21 women and picks Alyssa out of a photo lineup. Uh, He claims he killed her, chopped up her body, and disposes of her in a recycling plant in Georgia. Now, obviously, his claims weren't verified. He ended up failing a polygraph, and he claims that she was a heroin addict, which she was not. And I'm sure it would have been heroin addicts, I hate to say it, are kind of obvious sometimes. Uh, what, What were your thoughts when that happened, when when he confessed to this? Sure. I mean, when it happened, my dad was still around um, and it was kind of like a non-issue. He never really thought it was credible, so neither did I. But I mean, now looking back, I, I know even more it wasn't credible. If you look at it, you know, he um, he wrote the, the FBI and said, I'm going to make you famous. And then he admitted to killing many girls besides Alyssa. You know, there was a very long list of women that he said he killed, including J.C. Dugard, who is alive and well. 
Yeah, I've noticed that a lot of times with uh, with inmates. I know I covered a case recently to where an inmate in Florida confessed to a crime, and and it was just obvious and blatantly not true. But he was trying to gain some sort of notoriety for it, yeah. and and you can you can confirm that she was not a heroin addict. Correct. I mean, no, she was, I mean, she was not a heroin addict. Okay, I was gonna say like. You know, drugs are bad. Okay. Like I don't consider like most 17 year olds. I'm not going to say most, but a lot of 17 year olds. Okay. Listen, everybody smokes weed. Everybody drinks at some parties. You know, there's a big difference between that and shoving a needle in your arm, you know? So. Oh yeah. Very much so. And her friends confirm that too. Now in 2008, detective William Anderson and uh, Stuart Sumshue in Phoenix, Arizona, open up a new investigation Obviously, the original report was a teenage runaway. Um, After interviews of friends and her boyfriend, police suspect Michael Turney may have harmed her. How did all that come to light? What basically was it a bunch of pressure on them or did he eventually say something that kind of tipped them off? So to be honest, I don't know the exact reason. I mean, I don't know if it was something he said or something they saw or something someone else said. Or if it was because he refused to give an interview. Um, but I mean, I remember when they, I was in college when they came back or when they came into my life really. And we were close. Like my father handed over the, um, all the responsibility to me, like pretty much instantly. So I was the main contact person for the case. So I did multiple interviews. Um, we got to know each other very well. I interviewed them for my school paper. I considered them friends, um, for lack of a better word, really. But yeah. I mean, I became everything all at once, and then before I knew it, I was getting a call to go down to the station. I think their exact words were, um, come down to the station, we have some news about Alyssa. And I said, no problem, I have a Spanish test, will I be back in time? And they said, oh yeah, you'll be back in time, no big deal. So I go down there, and I wait probably about 30 minutes, I'm with my boyfriend, um, and they call me back, and they say, listen, we don't have any news about Alyssa, we're raiding your house right now. Um, And in fact, there are allegations that your father sexually molested Alyssa. And there's also um, another sister that you have that your father never told you about. What do you think of your dad now? I'm pretty sure I exactly said, um, am I free to go? I need to call my brothers. And so, I mean, that's how it unfolded for me. What he saw was something probably totally different. Now on December 11th, 2008, the police did execute a service warrant for the home that they lived in uh, when Alyssa disappeared in the house across the street, which uh, which Michael occupied. I'm not sure if he lives there now. No, and, he lives he lives in a hotel somewhere. I'm told. And a, yeah, it's kind of like a halfway house or something. Or, no, he's he's out of the halfway house. Okay, okay. So why don't you tell us what he found? Because there are a lot of pretty fucked up things that were in this house. Yeah. Um. So it's the largest. I believe, bomb and illegal weapon bust in Phoenix history, according to the police. And they found 26 improvised explosive devices, um, as well as, I guess, a handful of um, illegal guns, um, something like silencers, I believe. Yeah. But obviously, yeah. it, was the, it was the bombs that were extremely disturbing and shocking. You know, obviously, I, they evacuated the whole damn neighborhood. <clears throat> the FBI, ATF, police department all investigated uh, and in April of 2010, Michael goes on and pleads guilty to unlawful possession of unregistered destructive devices. 
He ends up being sentenced uh, to 10 years in federal prison. And on March 2nd, 2018, Michael was released. And this was when he was released to a halfway house in Phoenix. I do got to ask, what was the reasoning for all of this? So, I mean, along with the bombs, they found a manifesto. Um, he had plans to blow up the um, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Um, so it's, a, it's an electrical union that he used to work for. Um, and I mean, his battle with them spans to before I was born um, with all his conspiracy theories and how he felt about them. But yeah, I mean, that was his plan was to take all those bombs and put them in a van and drive them down there and um, blow them up. I mean, he had that manifesto pre-addressed to a few media companies inside of that space, along with um, some disguises. So although his manifesto says that he was planning on killing himself, you know, like suicide bombing the building, um, I don't think so. I mean, I think those disguises were there for a reason, and I think he was trying to get away. I mean, he's too selfish and egotistical to ever kill himself. When that happened right there, what were what was your initial thoughts? Because I would have been in shock. I mean, was there any indicators? I mean, you know, besides the obvious, like growing up that, you know, any kind of background he had, anything like that, that would indicate this guy could possibly blow up an entire building and shit. Sure. I mean, nothing to that extreme. I mean, he'd always been depressed since me and Alyssa's mother died when we were really young. He'd always been really depressed about that, but nothing to this extreme, no. Um, and I'd never seen him be violent. That was nothing I ever saw. I mean, he wasn't a great dad to me. Um, he let me do whatever I want and was a very absentee parent, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. But nothing like mass murder, no. What What are some other... Besides, obviously, Runaway and Michael, were there some, any other, like, substantial theories that were thrown around of what might have happened to Alyssa? Any other um, suspects, I should say? My father is the only person of interest in this case, and to my knowledge, the only one that has ever existed. Um, but my father threw out some theories. I mean, he, he said that there was um, a gentleman working at Alyssa's school that could have possibly given her the ride to California and killed her or sold her or something to that effect. And then at one point, um, he also said that he wanted to get revenge on the union because he thought two gentlemen um, murdered Alyssa. And he actually went as far as to say that because those two men murdered Alyssa, he in turn murdered those two men. Yeah, I mean, the police concluded that that was very, very unlikely. Um, the two gentlemen were actually um, found to be dead. So those gentlemen were real, the names he gave, but they had died of natural circumstances. Um, but what is so crazy is that also inside of the safety deposit box with these um, disguises, they found a social security card of an, the name of one of the gentlemen. Um, the last name was varied just a little bit, but it was almost dead on. So that's what's so confusing. And yeah, it, it's just so nuts because you think he's totally crazy and he's making everything up, but the names he gives are real and those people are actually dead. And then he has this social security card that could have been one of these gentlemen. So I guess means motive and opportunity. If Michael being the suspect, you have to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. What would his motive be? Oh, I think it was to keep her quiet. I think okay. she was getting older and wanted to go to California. Like she had stated in the letter. Yeah. And he knew that if she did that, that she would get actually get close to another person in her life and maybe confide in them, get close to a trusting adult that could help her. That would make total he, sense. I mean, he couldn't let that happen. Yeah. I mean, even today, he's sacrificing everything for his image. 
So how about the opportunity? Obviously, he was not there to pick you up, so he has to be somewhere. Were his whereabouts ever accounted for? No, absolutely not. He was never able to produce any receipts, and he had at least four hours. And obviously, like the the dumped book bag sounds more like a struggle. And then the letter in her handwriting would suggest that she was possibly forced. Uh, Do you think she was forced to write that letter? So I I waver on my theories, to be honest. I I don't. I think she wrote everything except for that last line on a different Mm day. Okay. Because if if you read it, you know, Dad and Sarah, when I went to school, um, I decided I really am going to California. That's why I saved my money. Sarah, you wanted me gone. Now you have it. And then she says, you know, something to that effect. And she says um, at the very end, Dad, I took $300 from you, Alyssa. And that very last line doesn't make sense to me. And it's also like off you. If you look at the physical letter, it goes down. It, it doesn't line up with the rest of the letter. And this could be nothing. And I could be blowing it out of proportion. But I don't understand why if she saved $1,800 that she did not take, why she would then kind of be, do this risky move and take $300 from our father also. Yeah, that makes absolutely no sense. And if you're going to write a letter, you're going to, especially one like that, in in cases I've seen anyway, like it's consecutive. You write it all right then. There's no second thought. You're not going to pre-write a letter and then add something at the end later. You know what I mean? That really Exactly. Well, and yeah, from his point of view, if you know she's not going to take her money out of her bank account and you're not going to have that paper trail, what's the next best thing? To pretend that she stole cash, and that's mm-hmm. how she got out. And she took a cell phone with her, supposedly, according to Michael. Was no, the there... cell phone was left behind. I suppose, yeah, that would be my next question. If you're going to travel to California, you know, an entire state away, why wouldn't you take your cell phone with you? I understand with how much surveillance there was on our house. If my mm-hmm. dad told me that my cell phone could tell him where I'm at, I would believe that. Yeah. If you're so controlling and overprotective and you give your 17-year-old daughter a cell phone, I wouldn't put it past him to say, I can track you on this. That's very Or true. even for her just to think that, you know what I mean? Just to be afraid of that. So I yeah. do understand why she left her cell phone because being older and recognizing what was going on in our home with the video surveillance and the audio surveillance, I would probably think my cell phone could track me too. I mean, they can these days. I don't think that oh, the, sure. the Nokia brick that she had back then could but um (laughs) looking back like they were the coolest thing ever at the time but yeah looking back it's like i don't i'm not a hundred percent sure that the technology was there right so i guess my next question would be the means how in in that time frame and where is your best guess to what might have happened to Alyssa and possibly do you guys have any ideas of a possible location of a body? I mean, I have my ideas. Um, I don't think she's in California. I think the turnaround was just way too quick for that. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I don't think he would move a body after the fact. I mean, I'm not an expert on like killing people and hiding their bodies, but it seems like a bad idea to go back. Right. You know, they always say like killers return to the site of the crime and he's ex law enforcement. He would know that. So I think he would do it in a very smart way, very fast and very effective. Um, So I don't think California is really an option. Um, What I do think is that she is in one of maybe two patches of desert. One is a patch of desert that we just went camping at all the time that I knew he was really familiar with. 
Um, the other is actually, um, it was turned into a shopping mall that summer. So my reasoning behind that was there were, you know, tons of holes in the ground and lots yeah. of building and development and a very easy and permanent way to it's hide a body. If, yeah. yeah, if it's under a department store or under a target, how are you ever going to find that unless you use, you know, ground penetrating radar, which I would mm-hmm. love, but you're not going to stumble across that body. Probably not, no. So within a four-hour time span, and I hate to say this, but because I've looked into like so many cases, not exactly of this nature, but uh, because of of like what I do here, was there any, I mean, any at all type of evidence that anything possibly could have been done at the house? Or do you think it was more of a, hey, I'm going to pick you up and then she just never made it home. I mean, obviously she made it home at some point, but living in a neighborhood, whether it's a father and daughter or an unknown male and, a, and another younger girl, I guess my question would be witnesses. If she was fighting, like the book bag is dumped out, everything's dumped out, there's possibly a struggle. Is there anybody that has ever come forward and said, you know what? You know, I saw him like forcing her into the car. Like, how do you think he would have been able to do that? Right. Um, so, no, there's no witnesses and no one has ever come forward. Um, but it's hard because that house has never had a full search on it. Um, and no one was interviewed until six or seven years after she disappeared. I mean, you can't expect someone to remember what happens on a random day six years ago. Uh, I mean, they did, they brought cadaver dogs in the backyard of that house when they were raiding our current home. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it didn't touch on anything, but I I don't think he would do that. I mean, we lived in, um, when we were all together, we lived in one house, right? And then after Mm -hmm. Alyssa left, my father bought the house directly across the street. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think he would leave evidence in a house that he is very close to or at all. I mean, it just... That makes sense. I don't think yeah. that it would have happened in the house. I think, you know, he took her out to an isolated desert area like she had reported he'd done before, and he just got a little too rough, and she fought back and maybe said some things that pissed him off, and it just triggered him. Yeah, I could see that happening, especially with the with the sexual assault claims or, you know, molestation claims and stuff like that. That would make sense. Like more of a, I hate, I hate to use the term crime of passion, but either that or fear. Because it seems like it could have been a crime of passion, but then I also feel like she might have been forced to write the end of that note. So it's it's hard to bring it all together. Yeah, definitely. Now, have you had any luck uh, out there at the campground with, you know, getting any searches or anything like that? Any dogs out there or, or any kind of ground penetrating anything out there? Because that would be, you know, a pretty good spot to, to have that. Oh, I would love that. Um I am researching it. At this point, I'm on my own. Um, At a certain point, the police sat me down and said there will be no search. I asked if I could fundraise for it, and they said no. I asked if I could advocate for it. You know, they said no. Um, And then I asked for suggestions. You know, where can I get ground penetrating radar? Where can I get cadaver dogs? And the answer was like, well, you know, everything out there isn't as good as our stuff, so we can't really recommend anything. No, that's like total bullshit. (laughs) <laughs> I've been told that before, yeah. I've been told That's the that. biggest crock of bullshit I've ever fucking heard. Yeah, no, I mean, it's at a complete roadblock. Um, I'm more unhappy with the police than I ever have been. Um, 
because they're just not doing what they're supposed to be, including, like, giving me resources to even do it myself. Like, I don't understand how that's going to hurt anything. Yeah, I don't. I'm I'm really honestly not understanding how the fuck they can even stop you to be. Well, they didn't say I can't do it. They said I can do it, but they just like won't help in any way. Is there is there any reasoning behind that? No, the police and I really came to a breaking point. Um, It was just a few days before my father was released that I got an email saying that the two detectives that had been on the case, these guys I interviewed for my school paper when I was a teenager, are no longer on the case just days before my dad gets out of prison. So you have to remember that I'm sitting here thinking when he gets out of prison, they're totally going to prosecute him. This is what they do. This is what the police told me they do. They said that they wait for someone to finish their entire sentence so they can come out and rearrest them so that they can't combine sentences and get off with a lighter sentence. They told me this. So I'm sitting here thinking this is going to happen. And instead, a few days before he gets released, I'm told the detectives are off the case. Then a few weeks later, I'm sat down and said there will be no prosecution. And then they offered me a silent witness campaign to which I was crying my eyes out and saying, I don't think this is going to help. And they said they need a witness. And then they said there would be a billboard with Alyssa's picture on it at every freeway in Phoenix. And that never happened. That is really interesting. Have you started any kind of fund or anything for for your cause? No, um, I've never asked for money in this case. Um, I want to make sure I know exactly how much this equipment costs, exactly Mm -hmm. where I want to dig, how long it's going to take, how many people we need before I even approach people for money. Um, I want to be very, very conscious of that. Now, there is a a podcast dedicated to your sister's case, correct? Yes. Okay. I'll be I'll be perfectly honest with you. When I do cases, I try not to listen to anybody else's stuff um, just because I don't like to be. Um, persuaded by somebody else's narrative, if that makes sense. Some people think it's yeah. kind of weird, but um, I like oh, I going into that. it with a with a fresh, fresh look on stuff. But have they been able to help at all or anything like that? I'm not exactly sure who does that podcast. There's only so much true crime I can listen to, like in a week, because <laughs> the shit gets too. depressing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But um, have has anything helped with with that podcast being around? Have they offered to help you at all? Yeah, I mean, it's a woman who does it. It's her first podcast, and we've actually become really good friends. Um, That's great. In terms of moving the case forward, unfortunately not. But through interviewing so many people that have never been interviewed before, she's found out some really cool stuff. I mean, somewhat horrible, but good for the case, cool stuff. Like, we found out she was expected at a party that night. Someone came forward and said that. We saw these letters that she wrote about the abuse. We had them physically in our hands. I mean... So a lot of cool stuff like that is coming out of it. There's even more. I mean, every day I feel like someone's coming forward and talking to her and saying something new. I mean, so that's the best silent witness campaign I have right now. And see, and here's the here's the thing that really bothers me is those letters alone, evidence and probable cause enough to open an investigation. Yeah. That's I what agree. I don't that's what I don't understand right here. And right now you're you're really wanting, you know, some kind of action from the court and you're not getting it. No, and what I told the sergeant was, listen, the worst thing that can happen if he does get, you know, if it's double jeopardy or, you know, we don't win, the worst thing that can happen is that he goes free. And that's exactly where we're at right now. Exactly. So it's like roll the dice and let's let's go for it. Right. For sure. But unfortunately, like you said, you know, law enforcement side, you know, smart enough to 
walk away without any evidence. Obviously, there's not going to be any kind of confession. But the other part of it is, I mean, I'm not sure how the statute of limitation works on, um, you know, child molestation cases. If there were even some amount of witnesses that came forward, even with those letters, even that should be able to open up a case. That's what's that's, crazy. That's I mean, the there's like 25 them. people that they've talked to that can confirm this story, or at least that Alyssa told them. I mean, including a teacher. What do you think their reasoning is for not going after this? I think that they're afraid that he's going to sue them. That or they just don't want to allocate the resources. But my problem with that is they've spent 10 years of resources on this already. Exactly. Why flush that all down the drain to not even do a trial? So the furthest this has gotten is the two detectives on the case, Summershoe and Anderson, presented this case to their boss or to someone higher up in the police department. I forget exactly who. And basically, they were doing that to see whether or not it was worth presenting to the Maricopa County District Attorney's Office for prosecution. So it hasn't ever actually been presented to the DA's office. They've only done like a pretend. And so I feel that it can't be that they're afraid to waste more resources, right? They've done 10, 10 years of resources and countless oh, exactly. interviews and trips to Florida and all this crap, right? I think it's like they're afraid that he's going to get off free and then sue them. Like, I don't know. I honestly don't even think that he'd be able to sue for anything. That's that's what kind of bothers me and kind of like a really bad example. Like O.J. Simpson or a case that I worked, uh, the Kathleen Colm. Uh, death uh, out of Indiana. They pretty much knew who did it, but they couldn't prove it. But yet still, that person was still found guilty of wrongful death. Unfortunately, even being found guilty of, you know, wrongful death, the Kathleen Cone case, unfortunately, the guy responsible ended up paying $5,000 to the family and then he was gone. He ended up moving to Florida or whatever. But still, something came out of it and there was still I don't want to say there was closure because there's never closure, you know, there's never going to be closure. But at the same time, it would be a little bit of a feeling of satisfaction that actually, you know, something happened like that's documented court of law. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, a wrongful death suit is definitely a plan B for me. It's not something I'm against. I just want a real fair trial for Alyssa. But I know that my, I mean, my time to do that is escaping me. He's 70 years old. Who knows how long he's going to live, and if he dies without being prosecuted, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, there's literally well, no right. any any reason that that a DA or law enforcement or the the detectives are taken off the case right before he gets out of prison. Like, like what days the fuck sense before, does that make? days before. It's too convenient. And I understand that I grew up with a conspiracy theorist, right? So my mind does gravitate towards that sometimes. But still, like, that's so convenient. But, that, and that's the thing, though. Like, conspiracy theories aren't always wrong. And it's not always crazy because, I, you know, I've said in, in several cases, like, one coincidence, yeah, that can totally happen. Two, all right, I can accept that. Kind of weird. Three, like, something's going on. And, right. like, right here, there's, there's, a lot. There's a lot of shit going on. That just makes absolutely no sense. Well, and right now I'm actually like, right before we started this conversation, I was emailing with the police because they've kind of in a roundabout way told me that I can't contact those two detectives anymore. But Mm -hmm. I pushed back and I said, okay, so which policy is it breaking for me to speak to them? I don't understand. 
mm-hmm. you know, can I speak to them or not? And they just like won't give me any straight answers. They won't tell me outright they don't want me to speak to them. And you know, their sergeant um, implied something to the to the effect of um, they, you know, we all know they were very emotional about this case. Yeah, well, it's ten years of their life. Wouldn't you be? Yeah, and so that makes me think that it wasn't their decision to be no. taken off the case, right? No. When I saw one of the detectives um, about a year ago now, actually, at the Missing in Arizona event, he talked to me for three hours. He's very passionate about this. He knows more about it than I do. He knows all the ins and outs. He wants this more than I do, and so does the other detective. He's just more reserved. Like, these are the gentlemen that sat me down and tried to convince me that my father was this horrible murderer, sexual predator. And I didn't believe them. And then I mm-hmm. finally come around and they say, no, we're not going to prosecute. Good luck. Your best chance is media. Right. Hey, and then they also won't engage in that media and will no longer what, though, help me. These days, though, I'll tell you right now, media is a very powerful tool at this point. I can tell oh, you yeah. that right now. And I mean, so at least we have that. And I'm really going to push for this. I've seen cases with less evidence where people are tried. You know, whether whether what evidence they do have is circumstantial or might be based on hearsay or or rumor. But I've still seen people prosecuted for less evidence than this. So, like, it really, really bothers me. Yeah. I mean, and fortunately, a lot of people feel that way. So I've come to find out there's a lot of people that are familiar with this case. And uh, even when I said something about covering this case in my Facebook group, my listeners are like, oh, my God, this case is just crazy. Like, there's no way. How do they not advance forward? And as I became more and more familiar with it, that's kind of where I'm at with it. Um, have you yeah. ever obviously, you know, you've talked to the, de- the you know, the detectives who, who were on the case for a while off the record and they even are like you had said, passionate about it. Do they kind of hint around to any kind of reasoning why there's just this roadblock? No, no. No. But one of the detectives did send me links to nobody cases. So it's not like they don't care. And I think they want it just as bad as I do, but no, I mean, and I've asked and asked and asked, but, um, I mean, I understand they need to maintain professionalism, but if I caught those guys in a bar with a couple of beers, I think they would tell me everything. But I think that's also why the police is so hesitant to let me talk to them. Uh, In all honesty, that is extremely plausible. Like, I don't want to say it's accurate, but it's extremely plausible. Because if they're as passionate with this uh, as they are, you know, with you, then obviously they're higher ups, their coworkers have seen it over the course of the years, you know, mm-hmm. all the hours that they've poured into this case. And to be honest with you, I'm honestly surprised that they didn't go for it while he was in prison. I, I've seen that happen a couple of times to where, hey, we got him locked up. He can't go anywhere. We're really yeah. going to dig. We're going to take this time to really dig into it. And they still had people actively working the case while he was in prison. But then literally days before he gets out, they're off the case and is there there's nobody actively investigating it is the case closed right now so no it is um open until the end of time at this point um it was assigned to a woman who refused to talk to me and then was taken off the case like i um i literally said oh you know welcome to the case or you know whatever and said um i'd love to speak to you on the phone and she was like no i prefer email it would literally never speak to me on the phone. The only in-person time um, we had together was um, 
with her and the detective from the case that had been there all along. And she said absolutely nothing, kept her sunglasses on, like wouldn't even look at me. Huh. And then, um, yeah, and then I forgot what I was asking her. And I said, you know, I'm so sorry if I've asked you this before. Sometimes I forget. It's so confusing. And um, I asked her the same question. And then she, like, refers to another email, like, underlines it, and is like, if you would have read my other email, you would have seen oh, this. I fucking hate Shit. Oh my god. So I file my first complaint ever against the Phoenix Police Department and I say this woman needs sensitivity training if she's to be working with families. I absolutely do not want to speak to her. Is there a reason I need to speak to her and not to the detectives that are actually aware of this case? And so they took her off the case and then gave me to a sergeant who is um over the detectives apparently. And he's not much better. He's responsive barely i mean it takes weeks and weeks to get responses sometimes and he doesn't seem very familiar with the case um they've actually been vetting a media opportunity a pretty big one um for about four months and i'm like what's the status i need to know if you're not going to do it i need to find somebody else i need to make this work for Alyssa. it's really important and he just keeps saying you know you don't understand you know um it it takes a long time to, to vet these things apparently months no, that's like total bullshit. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's yeah. the thing. They want me to shut up and go away. And, you know, I wrote an email and said, um, um, you know, I'm sure you're really sick of my emails. Um, but my job, you know, I'm, oh, I'm here to cooperate with you, but I'm also here to advocate. Like, you have to remember that I have to fight for her. So I'm not going to go away. Don't ever go away. Don't ever fucking stop. <laughs> I won't. Don't ever fucking stop. Because if you stop, then I'm going to have to come to Phoenix and make you start all over again is what's going <laughs> to have to happen. Because that's wow. that's unacceptable. Even if you've come to terms with the fact that you're, you know, your sister might have passed on, even if you've come to grips with that, that's understandable. But the actions or non-actions of the police department at this time is fucking infuriating you give me a lot of hope thank you hey you know what sometimes that's all people need to keep moving forward yeah to be honest with you if there's one thing i've learned doing this that's that's the one thing hope you know it's a four-letter word but it means the fucking world to some people so have you tried taking it to any kind of federal level I've tried taking it to the district district attorney's office, who they yeah. will not speak to me. I've tried to bring it to the chief of police, who will not speak to me. So, Sarah, what what are we looking for right now involving your sister's case? How are we how are we trying to move forward, and what what steps are we currently taking? Right now, um, one of my biggest initiatives is contacting the Maricopa County um, County District Attorney's Office, as well as the Phoenix Police Department. So they both actually have forms you can fill out online um, to tell them that you think that they should prosecute this case, but it needs to go further. Because that's where I'm at. I, I can't do it on my own. I need them to prosecute this. I just want a fair trial for Alyssa. Um, there's also a petition out there um, that people can sign. Great, great. And I will put that petition and whatever links that you send me, I will put in the uh, in the show notes and obviously post all over my social media as well. Do you have any closing statements or anything of that nature? I mean, just that I think what happened here is is pretty obvious to everyone who's familiar with the case. And thank you to everyone who shares Alyssa's content and listens to Alyssa's content. 
um, you guys keep me going. And um, I know I say that a lot, but it's true. I mean, you guys, podcasters in the true crime community, you guys are everything to me right now. Um, you're cheering me on and it helps a lot more than you'll ever know. Outstanding. Of course, we're going to cheer you on. God damn it. Like this whole case, <laughs> like not only the case itself is infuriating, but the, uh, the actions and non-actions of the uh, the Phoenix PD are pretty troubling as well, to be honest with you. That really, really bothers me. It doesn't make yeah. much sense either, so so definitely. So speaking of social media, Sarah, where can everybody find you and, uh, or, you know, not so much you personally, but um, information on your sister's case, um, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that? Yeah, so Facebook is Help Find Alyssa. Um, Instagram is Justice for Alyssa. We are trying to spread the hashtag Justice for Alyssa. So if you'd like to um, retweet that or put it in any of your posts, that is amazing. Um, but I am also, it's actually, it is my personal Twitter. Um, it just kind of happened that way. But okay. it's Sarah E. Turney. And um, I mean, I have nothing to hide. Come find me. I would love to talk to anybody and everybody about this case um, because every voice matters. We need the whole world screaming about this so that someone will actually do something. Agreed. I agreed wholeheartedly. That's uh very well said, Sarah. Very well said. Hopefully we can get the ball rolling with, with some of the things that we had previously talked about. And, um, you know, anytime you ever need anything, let me know. I, I'll try to help in any possible way I can. So. Of course. Well, thank you very much. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you again, Sarah, for joining me and um, leading the, uh, the listeners down this twisty road of a bunch of craziness. So uh, Sarah, thank you again for joining me and I hope you have a good evening. Thank you. You as well.